Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers, on today's biggest ideas. Should we see formality and ritual as a power play that embodies hierarchy and prejudice? Or might the abandonment of ritual be a contemporary mistake? Are social rules, as some in the Me Too movement have argued, a defense for the vulnerable? And can ritual lift us out of the mundane and to higher goals? Joining us to discuss form, ritual, power and prejudice our historian of ideas, Hannah Dawson, philosopher of religion, Linda Woodhead, and distinguished art critic, Noel Carroll. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Miriam Francois. Thank you so much and welcome everyone to this debate on form and ritual power and prejudice. Thank you so much for joining us. So from greetings and introductions to loves and relationships, church services and dances, formality and ritual were once a central part of our lives. But form and ritual have been in retreats for more than a century now. Many see it as a formality, as outdated and unnecessary sign of deference and welcome a less constrained, more open culture. Should we see formality and ritual as a power play that embeds hierarchy and prejudice and seek to eradicate it? Or might the abandonment of ritual be a contemporary mistake? Are social rules, as some in the Me Too movement have argued, a defense for the vulnerable? And can ritual lift us out of the mundane and everyday to higher and better goals? To discuss these very topical issues, I'm joined by a wonderful panel of speakers, historian of ideas and lecturer on the history of political thought at King's College London, Hannah Dawson, is one of the leading experts on how thought itself has changed over the centuries. Also uh, on the panel is Distinguished Professor of Religion and Society at Lancaster University, Linda Woodhead, who has an MBE for her services to higher education and is one of the leading experts in the world on Christianity. Noel Carroll is a renowned philosopher of art whose most celebrated work includes The Philosophy of Horror and Humor, a very short introduction. His expertise covers the philosophy of cinema, theatre, fine art, dance, and just about any artistic medium that you can think of. So welcome to our panel and thank you to all of you who are joining us here today. The way this is going to go is each of our speakers will now have three minutes to lay out their position in their pitch and I'm going to ask uh, the first speaker to come up today, if that's possible, Hannah Dawson. Could you lay out for us in three minutes whether we should seek to eradicate formality and ritual. 
Thank you, Miriam. And hello, everybody. I think that we need to be very wary of formality and ritual, because I think that they can be means of oppressing people. And I think that they can oppress people in two ways that I'm going to lay out now. So the first one is that I think that formality and ritual can actually bring into being and reinforce hierarchies, illegitimate hierarchies between individuals. So if you think of something very basic, um, like bowing and curtsying, these things seem very small and insignificant. But I think that um, there's a way in which that by bowing and by curtsying, we start to embody relations of power. And if we think about the, um, the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, he had this idea of habitus, which was the idea that small acts of moving our bodies, of practice in the world, they embody power relations. So that when we bow, we come to feel ourselves inferior. When we are bowed at, we come to feel ourselves superior. Um, so it creates rituals, create realities they create social realities. And even rituals that seem very insignificant and harmless, even polite and helpful, like for example, opening a door for a woman, saying ladies first, that that reinforces particular stereotypes of weakness and of difference and of dependency between the sexes. And the second way in which I think that um, we have to be wary of formality and ritual because they can oppress people is that in invoking formality and being polite and being civil and obeying the rules, telling people to watch their tone or calm down, be civil, we can often be suppressing, we can be crushing, we can be silencing legitimate anger and resistance. So for example, if we think about the recent Black Lives Matter movement, this uh, elicited a kind of backlash of people saying, be civil, be kind, as though somehow calling out racism were worse than the racism that was being called out. Civility, it seems to me, formality is often used as a mask for a justification for oppression. And we see that very clearly if we think historically about the whole idea of the civilizing mission, where actually, which was all about legitimizing empire, where actually what is coded as civil is in fact the very thing that causes the most kind of barbarism. And this leads on to my kind of final thought, which is that Often one needs to be uncivil, one needs to break the rules in order to stand up against um, injustice. And I'd like to end with a quote from Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist theorist, who says, power concedes nothing without a demand. Power, oppression, injustice rely on quiet submission to the rules. The only way in which we can actually progress, in which we can bring justice about in a society, is by standing up to it in an uncivil way. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Hannah. Lots of uh, food for thought to kick us off there. Uh, next up, I'd like to put the same question to Linda Woodhead. Should we seek to eradicate formality and ritual? Thanks very much. Um, I was just reading uh, a book which I really recommend called Paper Cuts by Stephen Bernard and it's rather a harrowing story about his sexual abuse and rape by a Catholic priest when he was a young boy. Stephen Bernard is now an academic at Oxford University and he talks about how difficult it has been to hold his life together as a victim of abuse and uh, about the medication he's on, about the therapy he has to have, about the sheer difficulty of keeping his identity together, having had it ripped apart so repeatedly. Uh, and one thing that struck me in this is that he says that every night when he goes to bed, 
he writes a note about what he did that day at work and what he has to do in the morning. So that when he wakes up, the first thing he does is pick up that piece of paper and look at who he is. It's a ritual. Uh, it's essential to holding him together. And I'm going to argue that we need to keep ritual and formality for two reasons. It's focusing and it's fortifying. Let me just say what I mean uh, by ritual. Ritual is repetition. It's bodily. It has to include the bodily uh, in quite a profound way. Good rituals do things that are to do with things like eating or being covered in water or sex or very bodily things. So repetition, body, but also some intention. You're intentionally doing these things and attention. You're paying attention when you're doing those things. So ritual in that sense, I think we just all have them and we'd fall apart without them. Uh, I start every day with a cup of tea in bed brought by my husband. He's not very civil uh, and he's not a particularly good ritual practitioner. I have to make him do this, but it's a very essential ritual for me. I just could not start the day without it. And I do pay attention and I do try and gather myself together. It's very, very important. So small things, they can give a focus. I've talked about them as a focus. There's a great ritual theorist called Jonathan Z. Phillips who talks about ritual as a focusing lens. And he gives the example of tribes he worked with. He's an anthropologist uh, who, before a hunt, always do a ritual in which they're playing through what they're going to do in the hunt. They're getting themselves into that mind. They're focusing on the perfect hunt so that they can then put that into action. I think, I think sports people do something similar these days. So focusing and fortifying. And we need fortification. It's about support. We support ourselves. God knows we need support these days. Uh, and we can have our own personal rituals to support ourselves. It's very nice sometimes when you have collective rituals that give you solidarity and support, particularly if you're an oppressed group trying to have a stand. Hannah made some excellent points. I don't disagree. Ritual can be abused. But think how important it was in uh, the USA, for example, in slaves being able to stand together and keep going and have a common voice. Thank you so much, Linda. Noel, should we seek to eradicate formality and ritual? Well, let me, let me start by just saying I'm not really comfortable with the terms of the discussion for two reasons. First, because it runs together two notions, uh, that of ritual and that of formality. They may overlap, but there are important differences between them that will certainly complicate, actually have already complicated, our discussion. Rituals are, with important respects, practices um, that we set aside. We put them off from the flow of everyday life. They're events that are made special. Uh, they're platforms for all sorts of things. Formalities, on the other hand, are indispensable to the flow of life, or at least some of them. Hewing, for example. We may sometimes call some everyday formalities, rituals, but that I, I think is to speak merely figuratively, perhaps as a way to disparage them as outmoded. My second reason for discomfort is its generality. It sounds as if we're being asked to rule on all formalities and all rituals. That seems to me quixotic. Formalities and rituals evolve socially to serve purposes, which they do badly or well or indifferently. The purposes, in turn, uh, that they serve are needful, useful, optimal, or benign, and will be judged 
in terms of, among other things, their necessity, their efficiency, their fitness in the context they occur. How we stand on an example of formality or a specific ritual will depend upon our consideration of the purposes they serve, first and foremost, as well as the degree to which they do or don't serve them. So in my view, a summary verdict on all formality along with all ritual would be very ill-advised. I don't know uh, who planned the order of this, but somehow mystically they put me in the position of the some do, some don't position. <laughs> uh, maybe just because somebody said, oh, he's a philosopher, they thought that that's where he would wind up. Uh, <laughs> but of course, I agree with the points that both the previous speakers have, have made. Hannah gave especially good examples of uh, misuse of, of formalities and rituals. And Linda actually anticipated a number of the things I was going to say about the power of ritual to foster attention and uh, focus and fortification. Thanks. Thank you so much to our speakers for laying out their position there. Now let's dive straight into it. Our traditions have been long-standing and we do things a certain way, be they due to customs, morality or religion. We're speaking here from uh, the United Kingdom where to be knighted is to be knighted by the royal family in a, in a very uh, ritualistic process, which some might argue reinforces social class by rendering certain uh, groups within society able to bestow certain honours over others and elevate them, as it were, socially and economically. But rituals mark key moments in our lives, be they marriage or funeral. Has our compulsion to maintain our traditions stood in the way of something new, something better, developing, or our formality and ritual, an obstacle to progress? Hannah, do you want to kick us off on that one? Yes. I mean, thinking about your last example, thinking about marriage, you know, my pitch was anti-ritual, but I mean, any sensible person is going to be ambivalent about this. And I mean, I agree with much of what's been said, but I think marriage is a really interesting example because it captures a lot of what I feel ambivalent about here. So um, on the one hand, you know, Christian marriage I'm talking about, um, which is still you know, often it is still the case that the father of the woman will walk that woman down the aisle and hand that woman over to the other man, the husband, um, as if she were property. She will often still wear white in this kind of extraordinary performance of virginity. And I find that mad kind of abhorrent in a way. I have always kind of revolted against that and have, have not been able to kind of imagine myself putting myself through that precisely because of the symbolism of that ritual. It feels so deeply oppressive. Um, and yet, you know, I go to my friends' weddings and I weep. I weep with the joy of the, the sense of the unity, the sense that this is bringing their joy, the, the witnessing of this love. And so I think that, you know, I think it's complicated. I think that um, it is an extraordinary thing that we still, that these weddings still go on. Of course, now they're not allowed because of COVID, but they have hitherto been going on in this way that has been unbelievably, extraordinarily oppressive in relation to the symbolism that it indicates between men and women. And yet we still go, and yet there I am, and I still love them too. I love to witness them. Uh, Linda, um, the oppressive symbolism of marriage, do you want to pick up on that for us? I think perhaps Hannah is, is taking things very too seriously, uh, <laughs> in the sense that she's putting enormous meaning into rituals. So, uh, uh, and seeming, 
feel that rituals can only have one meaning. There's a wonderful book I love. I always say to my students that Martin Stringer is an anthropologist who uh, studied Christian Eucharistic ritual. And he went around and he interviewed everybody after they'd been in this, you know, very solemn ritual where you have the bread and the wine and it's very silent and then the organ comes. And he interviewed people about what it meant to them. And for the hundred people he interviewed, he got a hundred different answers. Uh, and a lot of them had absolutely nothing to do with what the priest and the liturgy and the official meaning was. I mean, some people didn't, it didn't mean anything at all. It was completely meaningless. Some people have constructed their own meaning. And I think it's the same with weddings. It means one thing, it might mean patriarchal oppression to Hannah, but <laughs> for a lot of the brides walking down the aisle and their families, it's going to mean something completely different. And that's partly why ritual is so powerful, because it's so open-ended. And we can subvert it in our minds and we can give it a whole range of meanings. And it's, it's got this multivalency about it. So unlike dogma, ritual is open to what we project into it and the meanings we give to it. And I think that's part of its power. Now, what would you take on, on the, what would be your take on this issue? I mean, we, we focused on marriage uh, as one of the important modern rituals. Are they artistically beautiful, artistically horrible? Um, are the rituals oppressive within it? Or uh, what's your take? As my boring introductory remarks indicated, I take a mixed view on the progress, obstacle to progress question. I guess on the, on the marriage question, uh, when I married my, my late wife, uh, it was a, a Jewish ritual, and she changed it to shoot, suit her purposes. In that ritual, you're supposed to uh, step on a glass and break it. The man is supposed to do it. Uh, she insisted on having her own glass to break. Uh, so uh, uh, I guess I, I lean towards uh, Linda's uh, view uh, of the marriage situation in, insofar as it can be improvisatory and, and serve the ends of the, the people involved. In general, I think, you know, some formalities make progress possible. We're going to have a question and answer period. There will be some procedure set up, some formal procedure about how to proceed. We can't all talk at the same time. Not all of those uh, procedures uh, imaginable would be acceptable. Similarly, uh, some rituals encourage progress. Uh, awards ceremonies, for example, the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, for example, uh, I think of as progressive. Of course, not all award ceremonies are progressive. The American Academy Awards uh, were historically biased, uh, as well as being very boring. So some formalities are obstacles to progress. Deference to authority has been an impediment in arts and science, not to mention human emancipation. And some can be said, uh, the same can be said of many rituals, but uh, rituals also have a positive potential, uh, as I already indicated. For me, especially important is their potential for abetting social cohesion by engendering emotional sharing among a group. So where the purpose for which they've been enlisted, the purpose for which the emotional bonding has been listed is worthy, the ritual can be progressive. A case-by-case -case approach, I think, is obvious, and I know I'm being boring. I think probably both of uh, my uh, co-panelists agree. 
Well, I'm, I'd be interesting to push uh, the, the panel a little bit on, on some of the formal uh, rituals which are contested uh, today. So I'm thinking today, for example, of things like OBEs, MBEs, uh, which are bestowed, you know, on behalf of the empire, uh, and which many people today who are descendants of people from the former uh, empire uh, might consider to be quite an offensive terminology, and particularly when we consider uh, that these are uh, awards, if you want to call it that, or forms of ritual which are supposed to bestow prestige. Can there be an oppressive element? I mean, are we recognizing that there's an oppressive potential within certain forms of ritual? Yes, certainly there's an oppressive potential just because of what ritual does, because uh, as Noel said, it, it makes you feel special. It supports you. And in feeling special, you feel set apart very often from other people. This is what we do. And if you feel special and set apart, I've got my MBE, I'm set apart, then that can be used for good or ill. I mean, it can be used, MBEs are bestowed on a whole range of people of all classes. It can be used as a way of recognizing and lifting up the special actions of people and making them feel special uh, when otherwise what they do would be completely unrecognized. Or ritual can be a horrible way of saying we're special. If you look at the most elite institutions in Britain, you will find they all have masses of rituals. Go to Eton, go to Oxbridge, go to Parliament, go to the ju judiciaries. They wear special stuff, they do funny rituals, they have all sorts of private practices. It makes them special, it makes them set apart, it makes them different from the rest of us. Is it better to bring more people into that camp or is it better to get rid of the whole game altogether? And, and is the function of those rituals not to police the boundaries of who is recognized? You know, we mentioned, uh, Hannah mentioned Bourdieu earlier, uh, but, you know, p policing the social capital of those who are aware of the boundaries uh, of, of those rituals. Um, Hannah, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that one. I think that's a really interesting point, um, Miriam, that that there's a way in which a lot of these rituals are, of course, as we know, they're, they're deeply kind of learned, socialized behaviors. And either you kind of know how to play that game or you don't. And there's a way in which in professional contexts, it's very well known that women, that people of color, that marginalized groups feel excluded because they don't know how to participate, how to embody, how to speak um, in a way that kind of includes them in that um, that kind of hierarchy of habit. So I think that, you know, that we have to be very sensitive, as your original kind of question prompted us, to the deep kind of intimacies between power and ritual. And I mean, we've just seen with the most recent honours, I mean, they are just, they're just rank corruption. I mean, give it to my brother, give it to, you know, the people who's, who supported me in a completely illegal referendum. <laughs> well, no comment on that one. Noel, um, can you think of examples where formality and ritual have stood in the way of progress? Well, um, again, I think of uh, ritual in a fairly narrow way. So what, what I thought of when I was asked this question uh, was that the fact that historically uh, many rituals have stoked prejudice. For example, in wartime, in Europe, on, on both sides of the battle lines, invoked God to smite uh, their enemy. And their enemies, of course, included uh, vulnerable civilians, non-combatants in London, Dresden, and Hiroshima. So rituals have been used for platforms to uh, engender animosity, not only between classes and races, but entire nations. 
but re religious rituals, and, and Linda Wood Woodhead pointed this out, uh, provided platforms for abolitionists to agitate against slavery and for African-American clergy in the 50s and 60s in the United States to embolden uh, the cause of civil rights. So again, it, it, it's, a, it's a mixed bag, and the same applies to formalities. In some societies, as both the panelists have emphasized, formalities do continue to exist, and in many cases, for example, they uh, lead to people bowing, as, as Hannah pointed out, bowing, even a, a bodily inculcation of hierarchy. But in some societies, for example, or at least certain status of society, new formal speech codes have actually begun to take hold, new speech codes that... Uh, stigmatize, for example, pejorative remarks that were once commonplace about people who were disabled mentally and physically, as well as people with alternative sex and gender preferences. Uh, of course, different ethnic and racial groups that, that are different from, say, say, the majority. So again, I hate to be uh, the ironic reconciler here, but I think we just have to call it a, a mixed bag. Can I make a really short point, if Noel's finished? Yeah. Sometimes it's very good to oppose progress, and ritual's a really good way of doing it. Here's an example that gets my goat. My university used to have sabbaticals. Uh, Noel will know, you know, this goes back to the Hebrew Bible and the seventh day, and it was the seventh year that you had off. So wonderful tradition. And you could think about your sabbatical and relate it to the week and all these things that were... Now it's called... First it was called research leave. Now it's called something like, you know, authorised managerial leave. I don't know. It's got some ridiculous employment law sort of HR type name. So you've just lost that whole tradition you've lost that richness of it you've lost the sense of a ritual break in life and you've got some managerial ease well that's progress great yeah. <laughs> let's not have it yeah can I come in yes Hannah yeah so I think I mean I think we must all agree that rituals are it's a, in a way they're a kind of neutral category and they can be um, used for, for justice or for, or for its opposite and I think that what Linda's just pointed to is a really important point that she also raised in her original remarks which is about the question of you know in whose interests are these rituals being um, developed and and who is developing the rituals so in the case of the survivor of violence that that was a personal ritual that was developed by that person for that person's end. Sabbatical is a ritual that is developed for the good of academics. Yes, it is. <laughs> In those cases, um, clearly, they are vital. But what's crucial about those rituals is, as I say, the kind of the origin of those. You know, in whose interest do they serve? Well, they operate in a kind of egalitarian, um, kind of first personal way that precisely doesn't instantiate oppressive power relations. Well, which takes us nicely into the second part of our debate, where uh, we want to discuss some of those issues around how rituals and formality are wielded. So some in the Me Too movement have argued that social rules help to protect the vulnerable. But on the other hand, some have argued that our formalities and rituals have meant that the oppressed have remained oppressed. Do formality and ritual protect or help to protect against prejudice? Uh, for the most vulnerable in our society. Um, Linda, do you want to kick us off on that one? 
Well, I think you know probably that I'm going to say that I think they are protective. Uh, I think they are a way we can put a kind of cocoon around ourselves, whether that's the rituals of our small community or um, the ones that we personally devise, which increasingly has to be the case. Uh, in a way, the digital age is particularly hostile to ritual. You know, it's, it's, if I talked about ritual as fortifying and focusing and um, digital technology in a way does the exact opposite. You know, it diffuses you and it scatters you right across the world in a zillion communities and a zillion demands and things like that. And if you're not careful, it leeches away your powers as well. And so it makes it even more important, I think, to have a sort of digital sabbatical, I suppose, and uh, to have ways in which we can pull ourselves together again, whether that's socially or individually, to collect yourself together. I mean, it's not new. I was just watching um, some builders at a building site opposite me, and I was watching the builders. They have a tea break about five times throughout the day. They stop work, they down tools, they go and they sit down, they have their tea and their sandwiches. This is an absolutely essential protective break that fewer and fewer workers can have anymore. Uh, and yet it's so important. The world is bearing down on us with so many demands and so little support in so many ways. I think rituals are something that we can, they're free. You can all do it. I think we all need to start doing it and making it for ourselves and protecting ourselves more. You mentioned individual rituals. I'm just wondering what the power of individual rituals are as sort of societal rituals become eroded because they have different functions, don't they? Yeah, we've, I've been talking mostly about individual rituals because I think that's the, the direction in which things are going in our society. Um, and then social rituals, I think Noel said, and he's right, are the most powerful. We had a very interesting one here, didn't we, which was the COVID clapping, the clap for carers, which was a, a, a really social ritual. It's pure sort of, the sociologist Durkheim would say, it's pure collective effervescence where you all get together and you reinforce your social solidarity around a common set of values and a common ritual symbol and focus, which was the NHS and the pride diversity rainbow flag. So we do have common things that we still feel a need to ritualize. And ritual isn't static, you know, it can be reinvented collectively and it's very, very powerful when it's collective. But actually collective ritual is incredibly hard to organize and get right. The, uh, you know, the Nuremberg rally must be a good example of the worst sort of ritual you can have. But the Nazis gave up doing those rituals because they were a nightmare to organize and a shower of rain would ruin the whole atmosphere. So collective ritual is pretty hard to organize and get right. And we do have fewer and perhaps that's a, perhaps that's a sadness. Um, Hannah, I'd love to bring you in at this point on, on these so social rituals and, and individual rituals and the functions that they uh, may have individually or collectively. Because I, I'm, you raised the point of clapping uh, for the NHS, uh, Linda, and I thought that was a really interesting example because a lot of the critiques of that were, so on one hand, people said, well, isn't this fantastic? Everyone's kind of coming out onto their balconies in this show of support. But of course, uh, the clapping hasn't necessarily translated into, you know, the ritual hasn't translated into meaningful change. I think a lot of NHS workers would argue uh, for the material conditions in which they are currently having to operate. Um, so um, if, I, if I could push you on, on that one, Hannah, a little bit, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, can, can these yeah. Well, no, I mean, I was going to make exactly that point, that, um, that the clap seemed that the clap for Noel, this, I don't, did you do it in the States? 
um, the clap. Anyway, we clapped every Thursday. We came out and we clapped for um, frontline workers. Um, York, they sang at seven o'clock. You sang. Ah. Yeah. I thought so, yeah. People bent out the windows and sang at seven on the dot. Yeah. And so in, um, I mean, it was a really extraordinary and kind of interesting phenomenon in Britain. And it, it's absolutely true what Linda says, that it began as this sort of, you know, because we were all, uh, well, the lucky ones, as it were, the privileged ones were, were trapped inside our houses. Um, uh, and hopefully they were safe houses. Um, and, and, and then we had this kind of extraordinary moment of community and of togetherness, albeit at a distance, and this outpouring of kind of gratitude and of recognition of the horror that was um, was unfolding around us um, and the and the death that was unfolding and and it, it was incredibly emotional and 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 it was true gratitude and it had it served all sorts of purposes and they were different but they were also collective in many kind of powerful ways and 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 I and we we, we had it gave us great solace there's no doubt about that. But of course, what was very unnerving as the weeks went on, as Miriam has precisely said, is that it became clear that this was increasingly being used as a mask for structural um, horrors, uh, realities behind the scenes. So there was, you know, Boris Johnson clapping um, when he was exactly, as Miriam says, you know, not paying. Uh, the workers properly, not giving them protective equipment, not, as we now know, testing them um, adequately. And so there is a way in which these kind of, these performances of solidarity, these performances of gratitude and of togetherness can um, mask and um, silence and erase the kind of true horrors behind the scenes. No, if I can bring you in at this point to talk uh, to us um, it, to, in, in, in still the same vein, but about the aesthetic of the rituals um, that we see, because a lot of the uh, at least societal rituals that we that that, that, that are um, uh, kind of the the currency of, of uh, different cultures have a very specific aesthetic to them. Um, what's the function of these aesthetics within rituals, in your view? Well, I, I, I may have misled you when I talked about my, my marriage uh, my <laughs> life, in, in the sense that I, I was actually raised Catholic. I was a Catholic, and I was an altar boy, in fact, uh, for, for many years. So that's not, at least by the time I was an altar boy, <laughs> that was not uh, uh, an, an evolving uh, uh, ritual. That was one pretty well established. And I would want to point to the aesthetic dimension of that as really the kind of set of instrumentalities that Lind was referring to, because, of course, it was designed to focus and to emotionally move us by uh, moving our bodies in certain ways, according to certain signals, organizing us so that we all had expectations of what was to be done at what time, and through both pictorial representation and music and group singing, we became a, a, a social unit. So it was very aesthetically designed, as, as those of you uh, in a country that stays the Reformation probably are well aware of, uh, since that was one of uh, the problems that certain of you found with uh, the papacy. 
so uh, saying the obvious, the ritual can be uh, very uh, aesthetically designed, not for its own sake, but, but for the sake of focusing attention and emboldening a group. Linda and Hannah pointed out that really has to evolve. It's very difficult to set up that kind of aestheticized uh, ritual. Uh, the French Revolution was unable to do it. Uh, and as Linda stressed, the Nazis also found it difficult to organize off the cuff within a couple of years uh, an entirely uh, new ritual, even though they had Wagner's operas uh, as background to start to work with. I'm just wondering if the panel can give us a quick round, uh, this is a quick fire round on your views on whether these uh, ancient formalities and ritual will continue to retreat over the next century or will old traditions come back into fashion? Do they, do they still have currency in the modern era? Okay, well, as I've tediously repeated, um, our assessments of formalities and rituals depend on purposes. But where do those purposes come from? Well, they come from social circumstances. Uh, but so social circumstances uh, change. They change all of the time. And with them, our formalities and rituals have to mutate. Take the handshake, for example. Let's suppose that way back when, the handshake was... Uh, uh, a, a gesture that signaled peaceful intent. Uh, if you were holding my hand, I couldn't be hitting you with my club. Uh, <laughs> then as circumstances changed and we had fewer clubs and fewer axes, it became a gesture, say, of uh, friendship or, or in some cases trust to seal uh, a deal. But now with the COVID-19 epidemic, uh, and with the, the prospect of future pandemics, uh, that, that ritual may disappear uh, because the circumstances make it disappear. Well, another good example is the way that the calendrical ritual is changing in Britain and many Christian countries. So our calendar used to be entirely based around the life of Jesus Christ. So Christmas, Easter, and then all the festivals and feasts and fasts in between. Um, we have moved, interestingly, with no central orchestration, much more to a nature-based seasonal calendar. Um, the pagans have really made this um, uh, properly thought through and ritualized, but things like Beltane are now quite widely celebrated, huge celebrations in, in Edinburgh and other places. Uh, and more and more of us are just aware of the changing seasons and do something to ritualize them. Some people are rediscovering the lunar calendar as well. So weirdly, we're going back perhaps pre-Christian to even older traditions as we modernize. Although Muslims have been on the lunar calendar for, for a little while now, but yes. <laughs> um, Hannah. Yeah, so I think, I mean, I think, I think that ritual is inevitable and um, unnecessary. It's just that it has to come from a kind of a, an intention of, of mutual respect and of egalitarianism and of nourishing everyone within it rather than imposing power. And I'm, so I'm looking, I'm, I want a renewal of ritual along those lines um, and on that basis. And in particular, I'm looking very much now for a more effective ritualization of death. I mean, I think what's been shocking in this country, um, in the UK, that's to say, um, in the last um, few months is the way in which we have had a horror show 
of death. And we haven't really had any kind of collective mourning of that. We haven't had any acknowledgement from the government of the, of the horror. Um, and, and we need, we as individuals, as observers, as participants in this really desperate time, I think are looking, I'm, I'm really crying out for a ritual that will bring us together and help us heal. Because at the moment, it just feels like we're being gaslit about the fact that nothing's really happened. Go back to the pub. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you to all our speakers. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.